This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephan Cox. In partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network, we bring you our Deep Dive Town Hall series, learning about key issues Indivisibles care about. Today, a midterm report on this year's legislative session, which bills made it and which didn't, and which will need our help getting over the finish line. We have four bill trackers with the Washington Indivisible Legislative Action Team here with an update and some calls to action. Jim Austin tracks health care. Anna Floss tracks what's called good governance. Kirsten Hansen's team tracks racial equality and police accountability, and Kevin Jones follows the environment. This was recorded live on Tuesday, March 9th. Hello, everybody. Um, And just before we get started, I will say I'm so excited about tonight because this is our home team, right? These are the people in attendance and also the people who are the panelists, who are the ones who do things. We make things happen. So I'm just really excited to go over some things uh, tonight. And as Kat said, you know, there's been a lot that's going on in this session and I make it my business to kind of keep track of things. um, And I can't keep track of everything. And so we're very, very grateful to have our intrepid bill trackers here. Um, I should mention that Today was the actual deadline for passing bills out of their house of origin. So uh, apart from anything that is budget related, we should now have a pretty good idea of what is still alive that we can help push across the finish line here over the next couple weeks. Um, I have some stats for us. So far, 381 total bills have passed their house of origin and 11 have passed both chambers. The Senate has passed 184 bills and the House has passed 204. So... Good. Good progress. Uh, Let's meet our panel uh, because, like I said, it's the home team. Uh, Jim, Hannah, Kirsten, and Kevin. I thought it would be fun for uh, for us to start by having each of you tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to track your particular area. So, Jim, let's start with you, man. Uh, Well, I'm with uh, Washington's Indivisible 8th as Stefan knows, because uh, we're both in the same group. In fact, we live only three houses apart from each other. Hi, Jim. Right? <laughs> Just waiting yeah. from my window, yeah. <laughs> uh, like so many other people, after the 2016 election, uh, I was pretty depressed. And a friend of mine uh, indicated that he was going to be attending an indivisible meeting, and would I be interested in attending? Uh, that was in February, I think, of 2017. Uh, it was our group, and I've been going to meetings ever since. Uh, really uh, have loved being involved uh, with our group, a wonderful group of people and very dedicated uh, to a great cause. So that's how I got involved in Indivisible. Uh, in terms of healthcare, our group has, from time to time, had uh, take actions we've done that have related to health care, of course, on mainly on the national level when the Republicans were trying to get rid of uh, the ACA. Uh, and we had a number of uh, special presentations that I was involved with in, along with uh, one or two other people in our group on our research team uh, for our group on health care. And that's sort of how I got involved in it. And so starting two years ago, I began tracking health care bills uh, with this group and uh, have just kept with it for the last couple of years. Well, we're super lucky to have you, and we know all the work that you've done, uh, Jim. Um, Hannah, let's uh, let's talk with you and, and tell us a little about your background and how you came to track your particular area, which is uh, good governance. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm Hannah Floss from Indivisible East Side. And after the 2018 midterm blue wave that we had, those elections, um, we at Indivisible East Side realized that we needed to focus on um, our state government and state legislation. And as I was looking through pre-filed bills in December of 2018, um, I saw a bill titled Concerning Human Remains that piqued my interest. Um, it allows for um, natural organic reduction as another means of handling the deceased. I went down to Olympia and I testified in favor of the bill. And the, when the bill was enacted into law, um, it was such a gratifying feeling that I totally got hooked. So I'm also the elections observer coordinator for um, King County Democrats. And so voting and elections are an interest area of mine. So that's why I, I focused on this good governance. I love your origin story. You know, you go down and you get involved in that way. And all of a sudden there's, you get this dopamine rush, right? And it's like, yeah. wow, I made a difference. And then your next thing you know, you're, you're, you're tracking bills. Uh, Kirsten, yeah. um, we'll talk about your background a little bit. And I should uh, stipulate that you are a team leader when it comes to uh, tracking the, uh, the, the sorts of bills that you track. So tell us about that. Yeah, so race, equity, social justice, privacy, guns, like it's a huge, it's a, lot. it's a huge undertaking. Yeah. So I have an amazing team that is working on all of these bills and I'm just kind of overseeing them. So I have a background in policy and some lobbying. Um, and then Indivisible Kirkland has been working on policing issues and state bill tracking and developing relationships with our state reps for a few years now. Um, so it was a natural kind of step in for us. We're lucky to have you. I mean, your knowledge runs incredibly deep and you're kind of being uh, uh, modest about your, your many, many achievements. So we're just very, very lucky to have you on board. Can I, sorry, really quickly, is now the time to name my team? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, tell us who's okay. on your team. Okay, so. Um, Allison House, who is here tonight, and she better jump in when I get things wrong. Um, Bradley Clem, Heather McKnight, Jay Williamson, John Pincus, Madeline Bishop, MJ Carlson, and Sarah Franklin. Fantastic. Fantastic. And thanks to all of you for doing this work. And I will also say uh, and echo what Kristen just said, you know, we're counting on all of you uh, intrepid people to kind of keep us honest tonight because I'm going to be throwing some facts and figures around and, you know, so, some bills that I think have, you know, either passed or not passed. If you have any other information that contradicts that, please let us know because we want to be as accurate as possible tonight. So, Kevin, over to you, my friend. Uh, tell us about your background and how you came to be uh, as uh, as involved with with climate legislation as you have. Oh, absolutely happy to, Stefan. Uh, Kevin Jones, Indivisible Bashan. And uh, I just want to say that, you know, Kirsten, Jim, and Hannah, uh, we've all had a chance to talk. But people, uh, the, the four of us have uh, jumped in to sort of put our arms around these important issue areas. And, uh, and, and every, we're all working with a number of other folks who are doing really fantastic work. So uh, it's, it's really so gratifying to see uh, th these, these folks come together and make these things happen. Um, I kind of started when I was in the Mountaineers, I was involved with uh, the scrambling program and I uh, worked with their um, environment person to raise awareness of the places that we would hike through on the way to the peaks that we were working to get to the top of that were not protected. And we fi I figured if we could raise awareness of these beautiful lands that were not protected, 
then we could make advocates out of folks who were out there in the wilderness. And uh, so that was the start. After I retired, it, I was able to spend some time on the phone with Puget Sound Energy, asking them how their customers could help them move away from coal. And oddly, I never did get an answer to that question from them. Um, but I discovered uh, legislation. I helped work on the Clean Energy Transformation Act and also on rulemaking. And now those, those, that law has now turned into rules which will guide how the utilities have to conduct their business in the future. Um, and so it's uh, been really gratifying to have the opportunity to work at scale with so many people, so much knowledge, uh, and really dedicated to, to try to make really positive change happen. Well, again, we're lucky to have you on this, and I think your uh, background on this in terms of the intricacies and the way that policy moves uh, is just invaluable. You know, as I mentioned, everybody here works with the Washington Indivisible Legislative Action Team, or WILA. Uh, Jim, can I just call on you very briefly and tell us, what is WILA? Uh, WILA is a, uh, you might call it a network of indivisible groups throughout the state who have uh, decided to band together for the purpose of tracking legislation that we think is significant in Olympia this year and developing calls to action that we uh, send out to our members and to anybody who is interested in receiving them uh, so that we can uh, collectively have a greater a voice in Olympia and hopefully an influence in the way things go in the legislature. And Hannah, I'll ask you, because we had this conversation offline, um, can you give us an idea of who determines which bills get tracked and how? Sure. Um, indivisible groups around the state create their own priorities that fit their own membership. And Washington Indivisible Network facilitated bringing those groups together, as Jim just said in this Willa. Um, and it connects, you know, the, the different LDs, you know, and the different topic interest areas. Um, the Democrats indicated that this legislative session would be greatly limited in scope due to the pandemic and budget situation. So having only four topic areas works well this year. Um, it's also limited simply by the interests of those willing to do the work of tracking legislation. So if we have trackers that are interested in tracking bills, you know, they usually fit into one of these categories, you know, somehow as like Kirsten has many different things under her purview. Um, so it's, it's kind of based also on just tracker interest. Um, you know, one of the things that's going to come up tonight, I just wanted to define our terms, is the Take Action Network, or TAN. And so pe for people who really want to get involved with what you're doing, in addition to joining Willa, uh, one of the places that you can find uh, calls to action is on TAN. J just let's put a pin in that because I don't want to get too sidetracked. We'll talk about TAN um, and, and, and in a little bit more detail at the very end uh, tonight. But, you know, as I mentioned, today is the last day for same house bills. And the next deadline is March 26th when bills have to to pass out of committees in the opposite house. So that means we have a lot of input that we can have on the process over the next couple of weeks. So let's start with some specific legislation that is being tracked. And Hannah, let's just stick with you. Um, you track good governance. Um, just again, tell us how you define good governance. So there's a lot of things that could fall into this category. Um, you know, if you think about just in general national level, I mean, and anything related to how our, our society is governed could fall into this category. But due to bandwidth constraints, our group has primarily focused on money in politics, voting rights, and anything to do with elections. 
Um, privacy was sort of on the fence, but um, it's it's being tracked by Kirsten's group. But some of these things overlap, so it's kind of a little bit. But basically, it's it's governing and making sure that we don't have corruption in government. So money voting elections and certainly taxation has been on the forefront uh, this year. And let's just start with the, the big banner headline, capital gains tax passed. Yeah. By, by one vote. <laughs> this is yeah. uh, SB 5096. This is Senator June Robinson's bill. This would impose a tax on profits from the sale of investments like stocks and bonds. It is my understanding that the version that passed has been amended quite a bit. Can you tell us uh, about the bill? What, what specifically can you tell us about the bill that passed the Senate? Yeah. So um, 1596 implements a, ta- a tax on capital gains on investments. Um, the Senate Ways and Means Committee made some changes that target it even more towards the wealthy. Um, it lowered the rate from 9% to 7%, and it raised the threshold of inclusion to $250,000. So, um, or exclusion, did I say exclusion or inclusion? <laughs> exclusion. Um, so, you know, there's $250,000 before you get taxed. Um, it's still a good bill um, because we don't even have a tax capital gains tax right now. So any, anything is better than nothing. So, yeah, I know that there was a, a lot of, a lot of eyeballs on, on this and really a lot of hope that we would uh, actually be able to produce something. It's a win. So I hesitate to bring up the fact that Senator Steve Hobbs managed to make an amendment to it that may be consequential down the road. What should we know about that? So the bill was passed, as you mentioned, in the Senate, 25 to 24, and three Democrats voted against it. Um, that they sided with the Republicans. Senator Hobbs submitted an amendment that removed the emergency clause that would put the law into effect immediately. So this version has an effective date of January 1st, 2022. Um, if it does pass the House and goes into law, we should expect to see a referendum on the November ballot to repeal it before it even goes into effect on in January. Um, so we need to be prepared and we need to organize right off the bat for a defense against a p- potential referendum, because this is what the Republicans do when, yep. you know, like sex ed, right? They right away put out a, a referendum on the ballot. So yeah, even though we don't want to talk about the Democrats that, that vote against the Republicans, it gives us a, the ability to think ahead and organize. I think that's really important, and, and we really do need, need to be forward-thinking with a lot of this stuff here. Um, yeah. I also want to bring the wealth tax. Uh, this is Representative Noel Frames' bill. This is 1406. This would impose a 1% tax on the net worth of anyone worth more than a billion dollars in the state. There it is. That's that's all it is. That's that's exactly what it does. Um, this, to my understanding, this has not received a vote yet, but it doesn't mean that it's going to uh, to not get a vote eventually because it may come up uh, as as a budgetary item. This is my understanding anyway. Correct me if I'm wrong. What can you tell us about this? Yeah. So um, the prime sponsor is Representative Frame, and she is the chair of the Finance Committee in the House. So she has control of whether the bill leaves her her committee or not. And I heard from her and she's going to wait until later in the session um, to to pass it out of her finance committee and then get pulled to the floor for a vote. Um, And she says this is typical of revenue bills. Um, And she also my inference is maybe she's waiting to see what happens with capital gains. I, I don't know, but. Maybe she's waiting to see what's what's going on there. And just another side note on this 1% on 
on tangible assets exceeding a billion dollars, it's only going to affect approximately 100 people in the state. That is my understanding. Uh, and it was also kind of shocking to me that we had 100 billionaires in this state, <laughs> but we're a popular place to live and a lot of people make a lot of money here. So uh, let's talk also about Senator Bob Hasegawa State Bank. Um, this was something that we actually had him on the podcast to talk uh, extensively about this. And this would create a state bank to finance public projects, uh, among other things. Uh, and it passed, but they're now defining it as a financial cooperative without getting too into the weeds. Can you just kind of tease out what that means? I'm not 100% sure what the difference is, but I think it just, it 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 puts in a different regulatory, you know, um, it provides opportunities for state, local, and tribal entities to competitively finance a broad array of public infrastructure and economic development projects, including housing at competitive rates and low administrative costs and fills gaps with the current banking system that, that they can't or will not fill. So I think it just allows you know, I don't, I'm not exactly sure what the bank versus financial cooperative is. Um, I'm, I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, maybe somebody online might know. <laughs> well, Senator Hasegawa has said that he felt that this was a good start. Uh, and so maybe we'll have him back on the show to kind of unpack what this latest uh, measure means. Um, and I want to ask you very briefly about uh, something that Sen- Senator Patty Cooterer uh, did. She proposed a constitutional amendment on campaign finance reform. This would undo a lot of the damage of Citizens United, but... It's kind of a complicated process, so and, and I know that we're we're already kind of running up against the clock here. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk us briefly through what this looks like. Yeah, she's been working on this for a long time. So um, it's it's a request to Congress um, to propose an amendment to fight the influence of big money and special interests in government, basically um, counteracting Citizens United. Um, this year's version would give Congress a deadline. Um, and it proposes an amendment by the 2024 elections. And if they don't do that, then it would, um, then it would, they would apply for a limited Article Five convention to propose an amendment. Um, now, the main objective of the memorial, um, or the, you know, the main objection is this fear of this runaway convention situation. Um, but that there's has to be 38 states for that to happen. Um, so to even go into a convention and we're only at six right now. So really the, the goal of this joint memorial that Cooter keeps proposing um, every year is just to press Congress to take action because Congress isn't taking action on Citizens United. So this is just her, you know, their way of, you know, putting a little bit pressure on Congress. And where does this amendment stand right now? It has not passed. Okay. Um, it hasn't even been pulled from rules, unfortunately. And I emailed to Cooter and I never heard back on whether it still was. I think it might be dead again. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out. And if it comes back next year, that would necessitate a conversation perhaps between uh, me and the senator, because I think people would like to know a lot more about that. Um, there are a few uh, voting rights bills that I want to just kind of tick down with you. Uh, the most interesting, I think, and is the one that's gotten some of the most press was 1078. This restores voter uh, eligibility for the formerly incarcerated. This is from first term representative Tara Simmons. Tell us about her and this bill. This is the one I'm super excited about. So HB 1078 restores voting rights to felons coming out of prison, regardless of whether they owe fines or are in community custody, parole, 
Um, this bill is really important freshman bill for newly elected Representative Tara Simmons, who's um, Washington State's first formerly incarcerated legislator. Um, upon being released from prison for drug and theft convictions, she learned how hard it is to return to society. She struggled and through perseverance and hard work, she earned a law degree from Seattle University and um, she's currently a public defender. And this bill is just such a meaningful piece of legislation for her to be able to usher into law. Um, and it's passed the house and has a public hearing tomorrow. Right. That, so is, that, that is tremendous, tremendous news. Um, just in the interest of time, I'm just going to kind of tick through a, a couple of the other things. Uh, and, and one of them is, you know, we know that in keeping with uh, a number of states across the country, Republicans in the Washington legislature have proposed voting restriction bills. Um, I'm, just, I'm just rolling my eyes for people who can't see me. Uh, briefly, what happened with those? Yeah, so a whole bunch of bills were filed, um, and um, they basically, you know, some of them were ridiculous, like uh, creating an electoral college for the governor's race. And But the, the thing is, we control both the House and the Senate, and because we control the committees, they don't even get a hearing. So um, if that's why controlling the House and the Senate is so important, because you know, they, that determines what gets heard and what doesn't, what gets a hearing and what doesn't. So, yeah. um, yeah, they just never went anywhere because Democrats weren't willing to bring it up. Before, it's kind of like the Mitch McConnell. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, there's a right. lot of parallels between uh, what's happening yeah. federally and what's happening here stateside. Uh, and before we let you go, any calls to action? Um, definitely on 1078, um, sign in pro tomorrow. And then it has an executive session on the 12th. And then the other one was, um, what was the other one? Um, no, I'm forgetting. I think State Bank. Okay, State so 1078 Bank. was. And they're on my slides. Okay, terrific. And 1078 was restoring uh, voter uh, eligibility for the formerly yes. incarcerated. And then yes. the State Bank is uh, SB 5188. And these are things that you can uh, take action on on the Take Action Network. And again, we will have more information about that at the end of our presentation tonight. So let's talk next with our friend Kevin Jones. Hello, Kevin. Uh, so. Um, people were hoping, I think, that, you know, with Democrats having comfortable majorities in, in both chambers, that we would be able to get a lot done on climate. And, and we know, of course, as I was mentioning earlier, that it was a caucus priority. What is your brief assessment on the progress so far this session? Uh, well, uh, thanks for the opportunity to talk about where we stand. Uh, you know, the limited expectations for this session, I don't think have been borne out. I'm really pretty impressed with how much legislation is out there. Uh, when I, I'll answer the question, but first I want to let people know that Jonathan Gruden, Julie Andrzejewski, Kathleen Wallace, Linda Hood, Lisa Cezanne, Marty Bishop, Pete Stepani, Madeline Bishop, Sarah Richards, and Sandy Spears have all helped us in moving uh, calls to action on this legislation. So, Excellent. Um, yeah, I'm just super impressed with the um, the variety of the of the legislation that's out there. Um, I'd say the assessment is that the big bills are mostly still in play. Um, we're talking about clean fuels, hydrofluorocarbon leak detection, two bills on carbon pricing policy, and uh, an economic justice climate bill is still in play. Um, and the the one area that we're uh, unfortunately didn't move forward the building decarbonization. Um, most people might not know that uh, buildings are the like the number two source of emissions in in our state. And uh, unfortunately, House Bill 1084 did not make it out of the House this session. 
Uh, so we'll have to, to work on that one. Let's break down a few of the things that you just sort of listed off. So we'll start with clean fuel standard. And this is one that, uh, again, has been sort of like a marquee bill. And we know that this went down famously uh, last year. This is Representative Joe Fitzgibbon's bill, I believe, uh, at the behest of Governor Inslee. Um, just tell us briefly what this bill would do. Uh, so th- this is the third attempt on this piece of legislation, and the Representative Fitzgibbon has sponsored this now the, the third time. Um, it's, this is our number one emission source in the state of Washington. It's, trans- it's greenhouse gases from the transportation sector. Uh, the bill is intended to uh, do a couple things. One is the, the primary thing is to reduce the carbon content of our transportation fuels. And that can be anything from the manufacturing to the actual chemical composition of the fuel. And so the the bill actually covers not only the standard things like petroleum products and things like that, but also electricity. And you think about charging up your electric car. Well, how much carbon is in that electricity that comes in? So there's an interesting set of incentives in this bill to to really reduce that carbon content. Um, the, The goal would be to drop our greenhouse gas emissions from fuels uh, other than the electricity, which is handled under different legislation, but 10% below our 2017 emission levels uh, in, in like seven years from now, and 20% below those same levels by the year 2035. You said that this has been tried three years in a row. Uh, last year, Senator Steve Hobbs blocked it in the Senate Environment, Environment Committee. I understand you can't do that this year. Uh, Senate Transportation Committee, just to make one uh, to, to get the record straight. Uh, yeah, oh, it was a transformation. Th- thank you. It was a transformation. Yeah. 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 Carlisle is a Senate environment and, uh, you know, Carlisle and Fitzgibbon work closely together. So so they saw uh, to, to pass this bill out of the uh, Senate Environment Committee. But, uh, you know, Senator Hobbs has highway interests. Uh, he's definitely in the transportation uh, committee deals with a lot of transportation interests and uh, yes, has refused to actually allow a vote on the bill for two years in a row. So interestingly enough, the Senate, uh, the, the Democratic caucus has apparently a new rule this year that says if a bill becomes a caucus priority, then the uh, committee chair is not allowed to block the bill from a vote. And I don't know if that has the subtitle Steve Hobbs new rule on it or not, but, um, but clearly um, I, the, the, the rules should help us uh, this year in terms of at least getting a vote on the legislation. There were a couple of bills that you talked about. Um, and, you know, when we discussed these, you, you were like, they're not flashy, but they're important. Let's talk about uh, the one that is still alive, which is uh, 1050. This is the hydrofluorocarbon leak reduction bill. Honestly, I'm I, I'm going to just take a, a lap here for taking. I I, I, <laughs> okay. I struggle with that. Like I was reading that so many times, and I'm not even going to try it again. But anyway, um, you know, as you said, it's not a flashy bill, but it's very very important. Can you just talk briefly about why? It is, and the good news is this has passed the House, um, and so it's now on onto the Senate, where it's uh, very likely to pass at least the Environment Committee. Okay. Uh, hydrofluorocarbons are the stuff that's in our refrigerators, in our air conditioners for our cars. It's a compressible gas that basically makes those units cool things off, uh, cool off the exhaust air from those. When those escape into the atmosphere, uh, for example, Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown, which many environmental folks are familiar with, the number one item was managing refrigerants. And the reason they're so important is they have anywhere from 1,000 to 9,000 times the global warming potential of carbon dioxide. 
Wow. So um, they're incredibly powerful in terms of trapping greenhouse gas. And this is why it's so important uh, to to capture them and make sure they don't get into the atmosphere. We had been watching uh, HB 1084, which would decarbonize buildings. Um, this didn't make it. Do you anticipate this is going to come back next year? I very expect to see it next year. Yeah, okay. absolutely. It's a bicameral session. Uh, the bill will probably be introduced uh, uh, with the same number. And they may, you know, take a lesson from what happened and and make some revisions to the contents. But it's not going away. Um, and the building sector, um, there's some colleagues of mine who are actually work in the building industry, and they have seen the Im- amazing improvements in efficiency that you can get through the building. Uh, the Bullet Center in Seattle is one example. The one of the uh, my, another colleague who helped work on that building now has introduced programs within the city of Seattle where they've got now uh, at least five or six buildings who are subscribing to the same kind of approach that they use at the Bullet Center. So I think there's a real opportunity to reduce those greenhouse gas emissions from Good. buildings. Good. We'll keep an eye on that. And then uh, 1139 tests for lead in drinking water. Um, it's sort of surprising that this wasn't present before, or at least in not as robust a form as we would like. Uh, but it did pass the House. What are your thoughts on where it might go in the Senate? You know, it passed 95 to, or 94 to 4. Good. And uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, the thing about lead is, right, you, it's not easily detectable. Um, after, um, you know, national outcry about lead in drinking water, um, you know, it became an issue here. And certain school districts have found they have lead in their drinking water. So I think it's a really wise move to, to go forward with this. This is a bill. The next bill is Senate Bill 5000, which is kind of exciting to me um, for, for for reasons that are kind of geeky. But this is the hydrogen vehicle bill. This seems to represent enormous possibility. And we know that there are bills like this in other in other states. Just can you just very briefly talk about what this bill would do and, and how you see it changing things here in the state? I'd love to, uh, you know, in this bill, we could, we could spend a whole hour talking. Right, about right, right. Yeah. Technology. We talked about them. We were preparing. It's like, we could <laughs> yes. go on and on but, about this. But what it does is it, it incentivizes the production of renewable hydrogen. And what the bill would do would be um, to create tax incentives for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles, which is one of many, many applications for hydrogen, which is a gas fuel that can be used to decarbonize some really hard to decarbonize sectors of society like possibly airplane travel, possibly steel manufacturing, the stuff you don't hear much about because they're really hard problems to solve. The great thing about this bill is if it passes, there's a PUD in Eastern Washington that will basically operate the first electrolyzer in Washington state. So electrolyzers take water and they split it into oxygen and hydrogen. They do that using excess spillover when the water's flowing over the dam and we have to spill the water because of the salmon or because you have the runoff in the springtime. And so when you don't have a demand for that electricity, it just basically, you, you don't sell the electricity if you, if you don't have a market for it, for example. This actually creates a market for that electricity, right? So instead of throwing it away, if you will, let's turn it into hydrogen. And then you burn that hydrogen in a vehicle and you end up with you know, water in the exhaust. I was going to say, so, yeah, there, there's no th- there's no carbon that results from burning uh, hydrogen, correct? If you do it improperly, you can get certain noctri- noct- noct- noxious gases coming out of it. Uh, and so it's important to manage the technology. But the Renewable Hydrogen Alliance is a group I've been working with for a couple of years. 
uh, indivisible Vashon is actually one of the sort of uh, supporting members of the RHA. Um, and oh, by the way, the, what they hope to do if they can get this moving is to really show the utility of hydrogen. They want to use it locally to you know, run farm equipment, but also uh, eventually to be able to you know, move produce across the state. So it really opens up the aperture for expanded use of hydrogen beyond the fuel cell demo that Inslee did you know, a year or two ago into more commercial vehicles and, and more uh, industrial applications. It's, you know, as I say, it's just tremendously exciting. So something we'll be keeping an eye on. Um, and I were, again, kind of poking up against the clock here. But I will just ask you to talk briefly about 5141, the HEAL Act. This passed the Senate. This bill would implement the recommendations of the Environmental Justice Task Force. What are some of their recommendations? So I, we, we do have to be cautious about time, but uh, this is the second time that this bill has been up at least. Um, basically, the HEAL Act would define environmental justice, which is a challenging, we all know what environmental justice is. It's a challenge sometimes to measure environmental justice so that you can put it into a set of statute that you can then guide the actions of various entities in the state. So that's one really important element of the HEAL Act. Um, it would basically its goal is to improve health conditions for all of the Washington residents, but really by prioritizing state agencies to, to improve the conditions, you know, the pollution and other health conditions due to, uh, you know, fossil fuel industries and other pollutants um, in communities that are suffering most. And so we think about pollution like industrial waste and diesel exhaust. So those are some of the highlights, I guess, of, of what I've seen in the bill lately. I know that you have some calls to action, but I know that they're going to uh, essentially, uh, you know, revolve around the um, uh, TAN and, and some things that we can do there. So I'll save you for last on that. And we will talk next with Kristen Hansen, who is leading a team, as, as we've uh, established, uh, tracking police accountability bills. Hello, Kirsten. How are you? Hi, I'm so sorry I got kicked out, so oh. I think I'm back. Oh, good. Okay, well, that's... Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know who is responsible for that, but they're going to get fined. That's that's all I can say. Um, so let's start by talking about this package of five bills specifically aimed at police accountability. Um, they have been making a lot of headlines. We know who the players are on this, uh, Milan Tai, uh, Jesse Johnson, others. Uh, people have been very, very hopeful that we might get some meaningful reform this session. So if you could just kind of tick down the five bills and tell us where they stand. Okay. So um, 5051 concerning state oversight and accountability um, is moving along. The only amendments made to that one have been by the sponsor. So that one so far, knock on wood, no issues with. 1054 establishes requirements for tactics and equipment used by peace officers also moving along. I'll talk a little bit more about some of the amendments on that one in a little bit. 1267 um, mandates independent investigations into police uses of deadly force. Um, the bill, which is based on recommendations made by the governor's task force, would create a new independent investigation agency under the office of the governor. 1310, um, concerning permissible uses of force by law enforcement and correctional officers. It requires de-escalation first, which again, crazy that <laughs> that wasn't already there, right. and is the enforcement mechanism for um, I-940. 
1202 allows for meaningful civil remedies for persons injured as a result of police misconduct. Unfortunately, that is the one out of the package that has not, that did not pass out of its house of origin. You said that you were going to talk about some amendments to uh, 1054. Yeah, so um, that's the the tactics bill, and they removed the ban on police dogs due to a lot of opposition on that. So now the bill establishes a work group to develop a model policy. And the use of tear gas, the governor actually is in favor of its use. So they are negotiating right now on the use of tear gas. But the families, the affected families and the ACLU are very clear on the things that they will not negotiate on. Um, and those are chokeholds, hot pursuits and no knock warrants. There was a bill that you brought to my attention, uh, 5134, that also did not make it, uh, which is not great. Um, but this uh, this was the police union bill, uh, probably not expected considering just how much power uh, police unions wield. And then you mentioned uh, Representative Meal and Ty's uh, House Bill uh, 1202 addressing meaningful civil remedies for persons injured as a result of police misconduct. Uh, are, are we expecting this one to come back next year? Absolutely. It's slated as a two-year bill now since it did not pass. Um, and it's it's absolutely necessary for justice for the families and for holding officers accountable. I'll just ask you generally of the bills that have made it out of their house of origin. Do you feel like there is a momentum uh, building for these bills uh, to, to actually pass the other house? I do, in part because of everything that has happened um, this past year, and then also it being made a priority by the caucus. There are a few other related bills that have been getting a lot of attention, including uh, Senator Monka Dengre's uh, duty to intervene bill. This is uh, 5066. Maybe just talk briefly about what that would do and where it currently stands. This is another one of those ones that it's crazy that we have to make a law to do this um but it demands that police intervene when they see wrongdoing or excessive use of force by other police officers and that they provide aid to injured victims at the earliest safest opportunity um it has passed and is now in the house public safety committee Good, good news on that. And then uh, this yeah. is another bill that has gotten a lot of attention, uh, 5226, concerning the, uh, the suspension of licenses for traffic inf- infractions. This has proved to be a very contentious bill. Can you talk a little bit about why? So a little background, because I didn't know this before this bill. Um, so Washington currently suspends driver's licenses for unpaid fines and fees. So this puts people at risk for being pulled over and then charged with a crime for trying to go to work or to the grocery store. So driving, so this is the technical name of it, driving while license suspended in the third degree is the most frequently charged crime in our state. So this bill creates payment plan options and a different infrastructure for handling outstanding fines and funding the court system. So the court system in local municipalities is funded on the backs of the poor with the current system. This bill doesn't really create a new way of funding the system, but instead addresses the moral imperative of not criminalizing poverty. So it's contentious because local governments could lose a lot of money, right? Um, But as activists have argued, 
perhaps all of that money isn't needed if we're not criminalizing poverty. So it becomes cyclical, right? Um, so the bill has some amendments that are problematic, such as requiring a person to show up in court to prove that they can't pay. Um, but the ACLU hopes to fix those as it now moves through the House. Can you just repeat what you said? Uh, driving, I, I believe, with a, a suspended license is the is a, in the third degree is the the most uh, prosecuted, the most frequently charged crime. Charged crime. Wow, that is that is news to me, and I think it might be news to a lot of other people listening tonight. Um, there are a couple other things that I want to go uh, down with you, and we'll try and move through them rather quickly. Um, so. Uh, HB 1090 is Representative Lillian Ortiz Self's bill. This would ban for-profit detention centers like the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma. And I guess a lot of people are thinking, if this passed, uh, and I I believe it made it out of its house of origin, could it really spell the end of the NWDC? It could, yeah. And since the NWDC is the GEO Group's flagship facility, People there know that shutting it down would be a critical blow to private detention across the country. Um, So it's not only an important bill for Washington state, but could be a catalyst for change across the country yep. as well. Absolutely so right. Exciting. Totally symbolic. And, uh, I, you know, I, I'm always uh, not surprised, but but really amazed at how at the vanguard we are here in Washington state on so many different issues that wind up being, you know, we the people wind up following our lead in, in so many other state legislatures. Um, you have a couple of privacy bills that you're tracking. I wonder if you could just run those down very briefly. So unfortunately... The only one that is still alive is the weak industry supported bad Washington Privacy Act, SB 5062, which passed the Senate. Um, We will be following the lead of the Tech Equity Coalition on working to improve it and pushing the House to adopt the People's Privacy Act. Um, But this is where individuals can really make a difference. Uh, The Privacy Working Group has some ambitious plans and has a meeting this Thursday at five o'clock. for those who are interested. And I think Kat's gonna put a a link there. And for people who have more questions about the privacy bills, John Pincus is your man. Yes, he is. He is a font of knowledge on that. And you can, uh, he can get into detail as to why the Washington Privacy Act uh, is the bad bill. Uh, And I know that he has a lot to say about that. Any calls to action uh, from you? Oh, so I can't go through all my bill calls to action. So I'm just going to direct everybody for to tan for yep. those. Fair enough. Um, but additionally, I would encourage people, since policing is still very much a local issue, if people have not already looked at their own local police departments and what their funding looks like, what their policies look like, especially around use of force, those are great places to start and also become educated around the issue. Also look at your elected officials and see if they take police union money. Unfortunately, a lot of our electeds and a lot of electeds in charge of how these uh, police accountability bills are going still take police union money. Um, And then for more information on police accountability, the ACLU is having an online event this Thursday. And on March 17th, the Washington for Black Lives is having a town hall with Representatives Johnson and Intamin that will be 
very good to tune into as well. Excellent. And I know we have that information as well. Kirsten, thank you so much. Um, and then finally, we have our friend Jim Austin. Howdy, neighbor, uh, who has hey. been tracking healthcare. Uh, Jim, you know, this session has been unique in so many ways due to the pandemic. And I- I'm wondering, how do you think the pandemic has impacted lawmaking around healthcare this year? Well, there have been an awful lot of bills this year, many of which we have not been tracking because they're not particularly controversial that have been designed to deal with the effects of the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic have the pandemic has really highlighted some of the deficiencies in our public health system uh, with uh, the ability to quickly get people uh, in place, uh, coming in from other states to practice uh, training, telemedicine uh, issues and the like. So there's been an awful lot of legislation uh, around that. I want to talk about, again, some of the highlight bills that are happening. And I know that you have some uh, some information for us here in your slideshow. All right. Well, let me just give you a, a, a quick rundown, if I could. Sure. Of what we've done. First, I think I need, need to give a shout out to the people who've been on the healthcare bill tracking team. And that would be Hillary Krebs, Mike Mulroy, Debbie Jackson, Hannah Floss, who's been doing double duty in our group and, and our own, uh, Carolyn Zimmers and uh, Sarah Franklin. Uh, there have been 120 approximately healthcare bills filed in uh, the current session. <clears throat> A lot of those bills, like I said, really don't need to be tracked. We've supported uh, 18 healthcare bills, our group. Uh, that would actually be 21 if you included companion bills, but I've treated for the purpose of these numbers bills with companions as being one, one bill. Of those 18, four are now dead, but 12 uh, are still quite alive and have passed the house in which they originated. Two are revenue generating bills that are not subject to the cutoff. One of those uh, which would impose a uh, covered life assessment uh, on insurers, uh, a small amount that would be added essentially to uh, the amount collected on each policy uh, to fund foundational public health services throughout the state. Those are the basic health services provided by public uh, entities like our local health boards and the, the state health system. Uh, and then the other one probably is not going to make it, but it's still alive. And that would be a, a soda pop tax that would be used for health equity measures. Uh, the good news is that every bill that we decided to track that we opposed is now dead. Uh, so uh, none of those will be going forward. We have The good news is when we do calls to action, it will always be for bills that we're supporting. Well, um, so I know that you have some slides lined up here. Uh, I have a number of bills that I would like to ask you about, sure. but I'll just, you know, can we go through a few of these and then you can uh, maybe run yeah. through the rest of your slides? Well, the, there we go. Yeah. Right on the top there is uh, 5399. This establishes a universal health care commission. This passed out of rules committee. Uh, this is in the House. And this is Senator Emily Randall's bill. Um, her previous bill to form a universal health care work group didn't pass, but it did get funded as a budget line item. So it uh, it was instigated. I'll ask you, what does this new bill do that establishes a healthcare commission? Well, the Universal Healthcare Work Group, of course, uh, had a uh, what it was designed to do and what its uh, charge to do was 
was to develop a proposal uh, by the end of this past year uh, to the legislature for a path to a universal health care system. Uh, the work group met on uh, virtually a monthly basis, but you know, with uh, the pandemic and having to do it on Zoom, uh, it, it was a challenging uh, process for them. They did ultimately come out with a report which basically laid out the three alternatives that they looked at as pathways to a, a universal public health care system in our state without making a recommendation on uh, any one of them. So the work was pretty much left undone. And what the current bill would do is to establish a commission uh, that would be a smaller group uh, consisting of various public uh, officials who have, um, uh, who work in the healthcare area or have expertise in that area, as well as people from the outside appointed by the governor with special health care, public health expertise, charged over the next four years uh, by the end of uh, two, 2024 to make a proposal to the legislature to come back with a proposal for uh, a universal health care system in our state including the funding of that, uh, transition issues, uh, and to uh, provide a proposal to the legislature within that time frame. You know, um, this is obviously an incredibly complicated process with so many moving parts. I think there are a lot of people who wanted to see this process move more quickly, um, but I think this is ultimately what we're going to have to work with. I will just mention that there's another health care bill. Uh, this is 5204, which is whole Washington's health trust bill. It appears dead at this point, but uh, whole Washington has said that if it didn't pass, they would mount another initiative drive. So if you're interested, you can look out for that. Uh, I see in your list, um, 53 so last year, Governor Inslee's Cascade Care passed, which would work with the ACA to provide more affordable options. And this is Senator Frock's bill. Uh, this would work to make uh, Cascade plan, uh, Care plans more affordable. Uh, what can you tell us about this? Well, uh, <clears throat> what the Cascade Care Plan does is it not only is designed to make plans more affordable, but it's also designed to make them more standardized or at least to provide people with uh, the option for standardized, standardized plans. Uh, the problem with our healthcare exchange, that's the exchange where people can buy individual plans on the healthcare market, is that uh, up to now, plans are categorized by uh, uh, how much value the insurer provides. You have certain platinum plans. If the insurers, if they're on an actuarial basis, the insurer is going to provide 90% of the, uh, the cost sharing. If it's 80%, it's a gold plan. If it's 70%, it's a silver plan. If it's 60%, it's a bronze plan. They all have to be ACA compliant, but within that broad framework, insurers are able to craft their own healthcare plans. And for the average consumer to try and compare these things uh, with all of the various variables is really extremely difficult. So what Cascade Care does is it requires insurers not only to offer the non-standardized, their own crafted uh, plans, but 
the state has now developed certain within the uh, gold, silver, and bronze group, certain standardized plans. And in order to offer any non-standardized plan on the healthcare exchange, healthcare insurers are required also to provide standardized plans. Uh, and the, in addition to that, what has happened is that uh, the state has uh, is making available on the uh, exchange certain so-called public option plans where the state goes out and contracts for plans that are intended to be even more affordable because there are uh, limits on what the reimbursement rate uh, may be under those plans, 160% of uh, the Medicare reimbursement rate. In addition, one of the big problems for people in the individ individ individual market for healthcare is what uh, people refer to as the subsidy cliff. Mm -hmm. uh, you may know that under the ACA, the federal government provides a certain subsidies and they provide those subsidies for uh, people earning up to 400% of the federal poverty rate. So if you're on one side of that 400% of the federal poverty rate side, if you earn a dollar less than that, you may be getting up to $35,000 of subsidies, depending on your circumstances. If you earn a dollar more, you get zero. So the state has come up with a, a plan to provide, uh, part of the Cascade Care was to make certain that we come up with a system for providing additional subsidies that will protect people at least up to 500% of the federal uh, poverty rate. And 5377, what it does is it provides the structure for that subsidization uh, plan, uh, determines the eligibility for those things, includes some additional uh, strengthening features for the public option plans. And, and the good news here is uh, things are getting better uh, this year, average premiums on plans on the state exchange are going to be declining for the very first time by 3%. The number of people who are signing up is increasing. 40,000 new people have now signed up for uh, uh, plans on the individual exchange with 30% of those being the standardized plans. So it seems to be working. We have just time for a couple of audience questions here, and uh, we'll, if, if uh, I can indulge all of you to just stay for another five minutes, uh, I would be so grateful. Uh, Sarah asks, I'm still a little confused about the best lobbying process to take when you know a bill is in rules and hope that it will be scheduled for a third or second reading versus when it is scheduled for a floor vote. It seems that sometimes the bill can go directly to a vote without a floor hearing. How do we keep track, and when do we alert our legislator that a floor vote is coming up and ask that they vote yes. I've actually had this same question because you really never know when the floor votes are coming up. Um, who who would like to take a, a stab at this question? Hannah, would you like to have a go at this? Yeah, it's a total mystery. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's um, even um, Marcy um, Maxwell has mentioned that a lot of this stuff is just an un unknown um, you know, when it's in rules for second reading, it can go from second to third reading immediately without any, a, a legislator can just call that and, and you know, the leadership decides. So 
it's really tough. So I think the calls to action need to happen. As long as it's sitting in rules, you just need to have the calls to action to pull it for a floor vote. We had a question about 1156 and why it did not get a floor vote this year. This is increasing representation and voter participation in local elections. Hannah, I think this would fall to you again. Uh, Any idea why this didn't get a vote? Yeah, sometimes um, there's a tactic for the Republicans to put up amendments to um, bills um, at the 11th hour. And, you know, some of them are just completely ridiculous, but it kind of eats up time. And they did that with the sex ed bill um, one year, not last last year, but the year before. Um, They put up like 100 and some, you know, amendments. And this happened with this 1156. Um, There was one amendment that just said basically anything to do with ranked choice voting is eliminated from the bill. Like, why would you put that amendment up? So I think that's what happened with ranked choice voting. I will also mention on the subject of private detention facilities that our friend Allison points out that the GEO group are going to have all of their staff call in con on 1090. So it's going to be vitally important uh, for all of us to watch for a pro action on this bill. Uh, Kat will have a link to sign pro in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the chat box there for you. And so one of the ways that you can get these sorts of calls to action is through the Take Action Network and Willa. Um, Kevin, just as a, a last word tonight... Can you just talk a little bit about TAN and uh, and how people can get involved? The the best person to cover that would be uh, Louise or Daniel. Uh, but uh, folks who are in the network uh, can, uh, if you're a group leader, you can si- send out an invitation to your members with a link that will join TAN and provide a lot of automated features uh, that, that you can use. I have, and I just put this out today, we did a, a podcast with Daniel, who is the creator of it, and Louise, who is an expert explainer. Uh, so if you're interested in that, head over to the Washington State Indivisible Podcast uh, community on Facebook, or you can also find it at Indivisible Podcast, uh, just Indivisible Podcast by itself on Facebook. Um, there's like, yeah, if you really want to get, uh, and it's so easy, you know, you basically just sign in and you uh, tick the boxes that you are interested in following and you get an email every single day it, it honestly couldn't be easier so uh, uh kevin you had one last thing to add um i do uh, <clears throat> you know what what you're seeing here in this podcast and and of course thank you uh for stefan and kat for pulling this together the tip of an iceberg there's uh, upwards i think of 30 to 40 people who are doing bill tracking um there's also a call to action process team so folks on the call here daniel and hannah and uh, Louise, also Sarah Franklin uh, and Kat are all part of that team. Uh, But the thing that I also wanna point out is that to make this possible, um, last year, uh, Louise helped chart a course to help automate the actions that went out. And this year has gone well beyond that, teaming up with Daniel to bring Take Action Network into this forum. Hours and hours of training and video production and getting people up to speed. And I know just that's the another tip of an iceberg of awesome amounts of work to really enable all of us to do this work. So I just want to make sure a shout out uh, to the awesome work that's been done there uh, to in leadership to make this all happen. Well, you uh, you beat me to it, Kevin. I was going to hand off and give you the last word uh, for a shout out tonight. And, and you just did it. And I'm so glad that you did. And thanks to everybody who has made all of this happen. Uh, I know that this is a hell of a lot of work. And we really rely on all of you to keep us up to date on what is just a 
huge, unwieldy process. And uh, I think we've gotten some incredible granular information tonight here. And I think this gives us a sense of what we're going to be doing over the next few weeks before the next deadline. And we couldn't be more grateful to all of you. Thank you guys so much tonight. My thanks again to Jim Austin, Hannah Floss, Kirsten Hansen, and Kevin Jones. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin, Louise Pathé, and Robin Gittleman. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org, and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc., and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.